Our scripture this morning is found in Daniel, if you want to read along, um, chapter, verse, chapter 4, verse 37 through chapter 5, verses 4. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of God of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, well, good morning, y'all. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Reed Kappel, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here if you leave the campus. And um, yeah, it's good to be with you all. Uh, if you do have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Daniel 5. Uh, but as, as Patrick read, there, there's, there's some connections that we need to make uh, from Daniel 4 to Daniel 5. But, but before we do that, I, I want to kind of share an observation that I've made of humanity. And, and that is humans make mistakes. I've, I've come to learn this both by observation and experience. Uh, but, and we all know this, we all make mistakes, but the question is, do we learn from our mistakes? Do we, do we actually make corrections and adjustments based on the mistakes we have had, we have experienced, as well as from the mistakes of others? Uh, and, and oftentimes in life, there are just seasons in life where you just, you just feel like you're not learning from your mistakes or the mistakes of others, and it's just a constant cycle of just making mistake after mistake. Sometimes life feels like like this video on repeat. Maybe you can identify with everybody. this. Everybody, say hi. 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 Come on back out. Hi. <laughs> oh. The best part, the last kid's just like, oh, oh, this is what we do. Okay, all right, I guess we fail. Let's show it just one more time. Can, I, can we just watch it? Just, oh, just one more time. It's, it's too Bye. good. Bye. <laughs> Come on back up. <laughs> and here he is, and okay. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. I mean, that's, there's, there's a sense in which we can identify with this. We just like, we make mistakes and we don't learn from them, or, or we're looking at people who are just making the same mistake after mistake and not learning from it. And, and if you were with us last week in Daniel 4, uh, we've been going through the book of Daniel and we had a story of a guy who made some mistakes but learned from them. You have King Nebuchadnezzar, this very arrogant, boastful, proud man who was humbled by God. And after that season of humiliation, he was able to declare that there is one true and living God. It's the God of Israel. And so we see Nebuchadnezzar learning from his mistakes. The question is, do the people that follow Nebuchadnezzar, do they Do they learn from his mistakes as well, or do they find themselves in a cycle of mistake after mistake, tripping over the entrance of the proverbial tent, so to speak? And so, as we turn to Daniel chapter 5, I want to set some context for us and help us understand what's going on in this story. Uh, But before we do, I want to pray as we enter into God's word and hear from him this morning. So let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we, we want to just pause and to, I, I just want to, Lord, to just confess, I, I want to trust in the power of your word and not in the power of my mind and the power of my wit, but, but I want to trust, Lord, in the power of your word to speak truth. Lord, your word reveals um, light in our dark lives. Uh, it brings truth to the lies in which we are so quick to embrace and believe. And so, Lord, in this moment, would you speak to us? Would you remove any barriers that keep us from, from knowing you, from seeing your truth, Lord? And, and would you show us who you are and who we are in light of you, that we might be able to live the life that you have called us to live, a life that is truly for our good and your glory. So we, we ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. All right, so Daniel chapter five. Um, now, one thing to kind of note, um, about 20 plus years have actually uh, passed from the end of Daniel four to the beginning of Daniel five, which is interesting because the, as you read, as you heard Patrick read, it, it just kind of goes uh, kind of seamlessly. Like usually when you're reading biblical history and a lot of time has passed, there's this kind of moment of like, and this person was reigning and then they died and then this person was reigning. But there's this very quick transition. And I think Daniel wants us to see the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and King Belshazzar in the beginning of chapter 5. So about 20 years have passed, um, and, and what the scripture says is that Belshazzar is the king of Babylon. Now, interesting note, just about history, um, during this time in history, Belshazzar actually was not the king of, of Babylon. It was, it was King Nabonidus. And, and many um, historians and, and critics of the Christian faith and of the Old Testament have, have shown this as a critique against the validity of Scripture. That, you know, Daniel says that the Belshazzar was king, but Nabonidus was, and that's true. He was the king. Uh, and so for a long time, there was a great sense of doubt in the trustworthiness and historicity of the book of Daniel because of this. But what, but what archaeological evidence has actually come to show is that during this time, Nabonidus was king, but he reigned, for, he reigned for about 17 years, and 10 of those 17 years, he was actually reigning from a distance. He was actually in northern Arabia, and during that time, Belshazzar was kind of the co-regent of Babylon in Babylon. So, so Nabonidus is king, it's true, but he had given Belshazzar, his son, the opportunity and, and the rights to reign over Babylon in his absence. And, and we've seen this, there, there was uh, one um, tablet that was found near the ancient city of Ur, which is in modern day Iraq. And on this tablet, there is this prayer, in, uh, this inscription of a prayer to both Nabonidus and Belshazzar. And it's a prayer that was, it was a customary prayer given to the monarch, to the king of Babylon. But it's given to Belshazzar and to Nabonidus, which kind of points to the fact that during this time, Nabonidus was king, but he was giving Belshazzar the opportunity to reign in Babylon as Nabonidus himself was in northern Arabia. And so, so we actually have good reason to trust what's going on in the historical records here. And actually, there's another piece of internal evidence that we'll see in a second. But what, what I want us to see is that Belshazzar is kind of, or Nabonidus is the king of Babylon, Belshazzar is kind of the assistant king or assistant to the king or whatever, however you want to interpret it. Uh, but Belshazzar is in Babylon at this time. The second thing to know before we jump into the story is that during this time, Babylon has been under siege for two and a half years by the Persian armies. So Babylon is surrounded by the Persian armies and has been so for about two and a half years. And during this time, Belshazzar decides to throw a party. And it's not like this kind of, you know, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of party. It's this like, hey, we are so confident that nobody can touch us that we're going to throw a party almost as if to throw it in the face of the Persians. 
And so we need to see it. So either Belshazzar is overly confident in himself, overly drunk because of wine, or a little bit of both. And so there's probably a bit of both of these things going on in his life. And so what I want to do is I want to walk us back through the, the story, and I want to do it by kind of pointing out a few chapters. And so the first chapter we're going to come to is part, uh, what comes before part B? Part A. Part, part A. Part, party. Party. It's, it's funny. Pro, I trust, trust me. It's funny. Uh, you will laugh later. But so basically what we see, Daniel chapter 5, some of you are now getting like, oh, party. Okay. So there's a party going on. Daniel chapter 5 opens up and Belshazzar is throwing this party. And it's not it's not like this elegant, like, cummerbund corsage string quartet party. This is like a drunken rager that, like, frat guys are, like, uncomfortable being at. You know, this is a bad place. No offense to frat guys, but uh, maybe a little. But the point is, is that there's this crazy drunken rager going on. Belshazzar, he has positioned himself to be the prominent person of the party. If you notice in verse 1, it says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. So the posture that he has is he's drinking in front of everyone. Like he, wants, he wants everyone to see his impeccable drinking skills, and he wants the attention in front of all of these people. And so he's kind of showing off, and more than likely he is drunk. The scriptures say that he's drinking wine, and then it says he's sampling the wine, or tasting the wine. And, and some, commentator, some commentators see that this means that he's experiencing the fullness of the wine, whatever that may mean. And so basically we have this case of Belshazzar trashed in front of his friends. But in addition to his arrogance of of saying, hey, the Persians can't even touch me, let's throw a party to show how little we think of them, he then summons that they bring in, someone bring in the, the vessels from the temple of Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar took. And so they bring in these, these golden vessels, these cups, these chalices that were used for holy practices in the temple. And he begins to use them as like these glorified beer bongs, essentially. And he's having this huge party, drinking from them. So not only is Belshazzar saying, this is how little I think of the Persian army, he's also saying, this is what I think of the God of Israel. I have such a low view of him that I'm going to offend him by using these holy artifacts to get drunk with. And in addition, I'm going to toast my false gods, my pagan gods, with them. Now, clearly, this, this action that, that uh, the Belshazzar is doing, it's, it's offensive. I mean, imagine, imagine if you're having a party, and, and let's say in, in your home you have an urn that has the remains of a loved one. Imagine someone comes in, empties this urn, and pours like a whole bunch of you know, inappropriate beverages into this urn and starts drinking from it. Like that's, like, it's incredibly offensive. This is the picture that we're seeing in Belshazzar. It's the actions of a drunk man. And so what happens next? Well, we see in the next chapter, which we'll get to in a second, we see something crazy happen. But what I want to point out is this, that while Belshazzar may be drunk on wine, the greater sense of intoxication that he's experiencing is his own pride. He's drunk on his pride. He is so boastful and arrogant, like the Persians can't touch me, God can't touch me, let's throw a party and show how amazing we are. And so as the story continues, we we go to chapter two, which I have entitled Godly Graffiti. And so the Godly Graffiti shows up, and and this is strange, okay? Like we've seen and and like read some crazy things in the story of Daniel so far, but this is just, this is really bizarre. And so basically what we have is, is uh, in, in the story, in verse 4 and 5, uh, we read, They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. 
So this is just bizarre. I mean, like, what's going on here? And, and what's interesting, every time I've read that story, I always picture a human hand drawing it, but actually it says it's the fingers of a human hand. So you have these floating fingers. Like, it's just like, oh, this is, I don't know if it makes it weird, but yeah, like, the, like thing from Adam's family shows up, apparently, and is inscribing this message on the wall. And, and how, does, how, does, how does Belshazzar respond? He gets out his phone, starts live streaming. You're like, check this out. No, he's like terrified. He's, he's completely mortified at this, this image of what he sees on the wall. And, and the way the scriptures describe his reaction, it's really funny. It says in verse six, then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Now that phrase, his limbs gave way, some translations say that his loins were loosened. You, you can interpret that however you want. I'm not sure what happened, but it, it probably wasn't pretty or clean. We'll just say that. But, but basically, I mean, you, you have Belshazzar terrified now. So this man who is before everyone, who, who wants the attention, is now this mess of humanity before all these lords, drunk in front of all of his friends. So what does he do? He sees this crazy vision. What does he do? Who does he call? He calls Ghostbusters, the same people that have been called throughout all the stories. He brings in the enchanters, the magicians, to make sense of these visions. And so they bring in the magicians, they bring in the enchanters. And first verse, same as the first, I mean, like, it's, it's, it's this repeat what has happened? They're brought in. This king sees this crazy vision. He brings in the magicians. They can't interpret it. And then who comes in to save the day? Good old Danny boy. So Danny is due, uh, comes to the rescue. And, so, and it's, really, it's really funny in the story. It talks about how Belshazzar's own mother had to come kind of calm him down. It's like, Let, we'll just go get Daniel and he'll make things okay. So Danny comes to the rescue. And keep in mind, this is, you know, 20 plus years have passed. So Daniel's closer to the age of 80 by this time. Okay, so he's not the young, you know, like, I eat vegetables and my face is always glowing all the time, like kind of Daniel. I mean, he's older now. He's had a very distinguished career. He's been promoted multiple times in Babylon, and he comes to the rescue. And, but what I want us to see is that, that Belshazzar seems to not really have the same respect for Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar had. If you read in verse 13, there's almost this sense of like Belshazzar has to be reminded, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who you are. He says, then, then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, you're that Daniel, that one of the exiles of Judah whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. As if to say like, yeah, yeah, you're that little slave boy. I remember, yeah, you were brought in. I remember all that. Yeah, you, you kind of interpreted some dreams. Yeah, I've heard of you. Okay, well, can you, can you make sense of this writing? And so really, Belshazzar is not respecting Daniel in this situation. But he offers him a reward. He says, if you can make sense of the writing on the wall, I will allow you to be the third ruler in the kingdom of Babylon. Which, if you remember, so that points to the evidence that Nabonidus, Belshazzar, are reigning in Babylon. The reason Daniel's invited to be the third is because both of them are kings at this time. And so, archaeological evidence, internal evidence of scripture kind of verifying that. So, just point that out. So, this is the reward given to Daniel. And I love Daniel's response. He's like, he's not like, oh, that's, I've been waiting for this. He responds, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. But nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So Daniel still decides to interpret. He still decides to, to kind of show that, that the true God of Israel is the true God over all. And he does so by interpreting the writing on the wall. Which leads to our next chapter, I have bad news and worse news. And so this is basically the message of the writing on the wall. And, and, and so, 
you know, if you've ever been in a situation like where your name or something associated with you is written on a wall somewhere, like it's usually not a good thing, you know? Like, like when I come home and my wife's like, uh, sweetie, there's writing on the wall. It's not really a good thing. It means that my girls have gotten out Sharpies and have drawn all over the wall. It's not a good thing. And also like if, if someone tells you like, hey, I saw your name on a bathroom stall. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not because you have a great lobster bisque recipe, okay? Like no one's gonna call you for that. You probably are not being represented well on a bathroom wall if your name or phone number is on there. You get what I'm saying here. So, so Daniel decides to interpret this message for Belshazzar. But before he does, he kind of walks him down memory lane. He kind of shows him like, hey, I just want you to remember who Nebuchadnezzar, do you, like, do you remember your predecessor? Do you remember King Nebuchadnezzar and what happened to him? And, and do you realize that you're kind of going down the same path and you're not really learning from his mistakes? You're basically tripping over the entrance of your tent over and over again? And he says in verses 22 and 23, you, his son, Belshazzar, which son is really just predecessor or, uh, or it means uh, the one that follows. It's, it's not biological son, but Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You knew what Nebuchadnezzar did. You know what, what God did to him. You know what happened. But instead, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. So basically, Daniel is saying to Belshazzar, look, you, you of all people should know to, you need to learn from your mistake, that you, you, you should see the example of Nebuchadnezzar and realize that you're going down that same path. How, how are you so blind? How are you so drunk by your own pride? But Daniel doesn't even let him respond. And he just goes on to interpret the message of judgment. And on the wall, there are four words written, really three words. One is written twice. The first word, mene, uh, which was written twice, it means that your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. And, and the reason why it's repeated twice is it's as if to say your days are numbered and that number is very, very small. You don't have much time left. Your days are numbered. The second word is tekel. Uh, tekel basically means that you have been weighed. It's, it's a reference to a form of currency. That you have been weighed in the scales of God and have been found wanting. That you have been weighed and you have been seen through God's eyes to be unworthy of his favor and his approval. You've been found weighed and wanting. And then the, and then the last word, parson. Your kingdom is divided. Your kingdom is divided between the Medes and the Persians. And so this is the message of judgment. Your days are numbered, Belshazzar, and that number is small. You have been found weighed and wanting. You are unworthy of God's approval. In fact, you are worthy of his judgment. And your kingdom will be divided. It will be divided this very night and your life will be taken from you. In fact, ancient Greek historians, uh, uh, Herodotus and Xenophon, they have both pointed out that Babylon was sacked the evening of a great feast, of a great party. And so this very night, what Daniel records is that this is the night that Babylon is sacked. This is the night that Belshazzar's life is taken from him. The writing on the wall is fulfilled that very moment. And so in this story, what do we see? We see that the writing on the wall is for Belshazzar, and it's not good news. It's a message of judgment, and more, and more specifically, it's a message of impending judgment. It's quick, it's imminent, it's coming now. But here's the thing. Just like the boys in the tent, just like Belshazzar with Nebuchadnezzar, we would be very naive to think that this message does not speak to us as well. That there is not something from this ancient story that we have to hear and listen to and respond to. 
This is not just a cool story from history that we have this interesting colloquial phrase, the writing on the wall, although that's true. There's so much more happening, and we need to see that the writing on the wall that was for Belshazzar is a writing on the wall and a message that stands against all of us. The question is, how will we respond to this writing on the wall that is for you and for me and for every person that has ever lived? So what I'd like to do for the rest of our time is just offer a few thoughts for us. As as we consider the writing on the wall, the message of judgment and condemnation that really is a message for all people, not just Belshazzar. When we consider the writing on the wall, how are we responding to it? How are we interpreting it? What is our understanding of this message? And what will we do in light of it? So let me just offer a few thoughts. The first is this, that the writing on the wall is greater than the wall itself. The writing on the wall is greater than the wall itself. And let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Remember, Belshazzar, he, he may be drunk on wine. It's, it's possible. But again, the greater intoxication is his pride. That, that in the midst of, of his city under siege, he is, he is throwing a drunken rager. He's throwing a party as if to say, I am untouchable. You can't get to me. And, and, and in that same time, he is taking this holy artifact from the temple of, of Jerusalem and is using it to toast his own gods as if to say, the God of all creation can't touch me. And so yes, while he may be drunk on wine, the greater intoxication is his own pride. The Persians can't touch me, God can't touch me. And, and the reason why I think Belshazzar is so confident, it's, it's a different kind of pride than Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's pride is, look at all the things that I have done, look what I have created, I wanna take credit for these things. Belshazzar's pride is a little bit different. It's more of this, nobody can touch me. I am beyond your reach. I am so powerful that I don't, I'm not threatened by any enemy, human or divine. And the reason why Belshazzar is so confident in himself, the reason he can throw this party in the midst of his city being under siege is because of his confidence in the walls. Now, Babel, like during, during ancient warfare, I mean, one, one of the, the tactics uh, of, a, of a warring nation was if you were trying to take over a city, you know, the, the, the goal wasn't to necessarily like tear down the walls. That was really hard to do. Rather, you would surround the city and wait them out. You would basically try to prevent any food and water from entering in and you would starve the people to where either they, they, they surrender and come out or they starve to death. And Babylon, being the powerhouse that it was, knew this war tactic, and that's why the wall was created in such a way, I love that it says artist rendition, like, oh, that's not a photograph from that time? You know, like, it's an artist rendition, people. Uh, but the reason, Babylon knew this war tactic, and it's why they built their wall in such a way that there was enough land to grow crops and cattle. It was built in such a way, not where the walls were all the way up until, until, to the homes and to the structures within Babylon, enough space for there to grow cattle and crops for food. But in addition, as you see, the river Euphrates goes right through the city of Babylon. And so they have an ample water source to provide for their needs. And so this is why Belshazzar is saying, like, do your worst. We've got like 12 Costco's in here, essentially. We're not going anywhere. And so this is the confidence that Belshazzar has. But here's the fascinating thing. Do you want to know how Babylon was sacked? It was actually through the river. What, what, what the Persians did, they, they, they dammed up the river and redirected its flow, which eventually allowed the riverbed to dry up, which then allowed the Persians very easily to enter into that riverbed and to walk underneath the wall and enter in and take over Babylon, ending this great dynasty forever. The great irony that you're probably sensing here is that the very thing 
that Belshazzar was confident in, the very thing that promised him security, was what led to his demise. And and the reason I, I say this is because when we consider the writing on the wall, the message of judgment that stands against all of us, oftentimes we think that the remedy, the rescue, the deliverance and security we have against this message of judgment is some kind of wall that we've created, some kind of security that we are trusting in that in the end will actually be to our demise. The things that we tend to trust in for our security tend to become walls that crumble in on us and destroy us. A couple weeks ago, I referenced the book, uh, The Gospel According to Daniel by Brian Chappell. And in it, he he talks about this passage and he, he offers us this very helpful point of reflection. He says, we must consider this truth not only in the context of this ancient account of an arrogant king, but also in terms of our lives today. There are walls we too may try to erect to protect our sin from the wrath of God. We must see the walls for what they are, foolish defenses that must be abandoned for our own welfare. So then the question for us is, what wall have we created? What sense of of man-made security are we trusting in? to be the thing that can actually deliver us from the writing on the wall, the message of judgment that condemns us all. You know, perhaps for some of us, the the wall we've created is our own intellect, that we we think that we can outsmart the judgment of God, that there's some way that, that I'm brilliant enough to outthink God, to outsmart him, so my intellect is the wall that I've created to trust in and to be saved from the judgment that's coming. Or perhaps it's our own morality, It's our own goodness that that perhaps there's a sense in which I can out-obey the judgment of God, that perhaps I can get into the scales of God and unlike Belshazzar, I can be weighed and found being approved by God. I can find his favor that I think I've done enough good things to be in the scales and God to say, well done. Perhaps the thing that we're trusting in maybe for you kids and students, perhaps it's your own youthfulness that you're thinking, look, I, like, I'll deal with this stuff later when I grow up. I've got enough time right now to just do what I want to do. I don't want to think about judgment or God or, or living my life in some way that he's expecting me to. I just want to kind of enjoy life right now. I'll deal with that when I'm older. Or perhaps it's our possessions, it's our money, it's our retirement plan, it's things that we've built up and said, look, I don't need to worry about God's judgment. I have enough things accumulated to to give me a sense of security and confidence. God's judgment, that's nothing. Do you know how big my 401k is? Like That's kind of our sense of security. Or perhaps we know that that judgment is coming. Perhaps we know that the writing on the wall is for us and so we just inoculate ourselves, We, we numb it through entertainment. Through, through alcohol, through, through drugs, through, through pornography, through various things that try to distract us. We know the judgment's coming, and so like, well, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Or perhaps it is the hope in who is elected on Tuesday. Perhaps that's like, look, I, I, I've built up so much confidence and trust in him or her or them and they and whatever, and that if they are in power, then things are going to be okay at least for a while. What is the wall? What is the sense of security you have created that you think will serve as the impenetrable shield from the writing on the wall. The thing we have to see is that the writing on the wall is greater than the wall itself that we have created. And because of this, we have to take the writing on the wall very seriously. We have to take it very seriously. And, and, I, and I say this because we need to consider judgment, not just from an abstract kind of theory idea, like what is judgment kind of as an abstract concept or, or as, a, as a social construct. We have to understand judgment as a personal reality. 
and I realize no one likes touching, talking about judgment, you know? Like no one's really eager, like, oh, I think there's a message on judgment coming. Like, ah, oh, that's warming my heart right now. Like no one wants to talk about this. But yet deep down, we all sure hope that judgment exists. Because, I mean, there's evil in the world and evil ought to be corrected. Wrongs must be righted. There are injustices. I sure hope someone's gonna get what they deserve in the end. We all actually want judgment. We just want it for other people and not ourselves. And, and here's the thing, you can't have both. If you want the evils of this world to be righted, if you want wrongs to be corrected, you have to realize that what you're asking for is judgment upon yourself. As, as Miroslav Volf, the Croatian theologian, he says it really well, he says, if I want God's wrath, if I want to see justice for evils in this world, if I want God's wrath to fall on evildoers, I must let it fall on myself as well. There is writing on the wall for all of us. But the question is, how do we respond to it? How seriously do we take it? And Belshazzar, if you remember, I mean, like his reaction was fear. I mean, like his knees are knocking. I mean, he's terrified of this. But the question is, what is he afraid of? Is he afraid? Is he realizing the damage that he has done to himself? Or is he simply fearful of the consequences? Is that what he is afraid of? Like, like if, I, if I get a speeding ticket, hypothetically, if I get a speeding ticket, am, am I upset because I have chosen to drive in such a way that I am putting others at risk? That I am driving in such a way that could have potentially led to an accident and harmed myself or others? Or am I upset because I have to shell out 180 bucks for this ticket when like, I mean, the, the speed limit changed and I wasn't paying attention. Like, like why am I really upset? I'm not upset because of what I was doing and the potential harm it has on me and others. I'm upset because of the consequence. In the same way, how we respond to evil is very important. We have to, how we respond to judgment is very important. The writing is on the wall for all of us and we can't escape it. I mean, think about, think about what Belshazzar is judged for, for his pride, for his irreverence toward God and his idolatry. Who in this room can pass that test? Who in this room has not been boastful and arrogant and proud? Who in this room has not been irreverent towards their maker? Who in this room has, has not turned to false gods in hopes that they will bring security and deliverance and rescue and worth and value? None of us pass that test. The writing on the wall for Belshazzar is for us as well. But the question is, how are we responding to it? Are we responding to it just because we don't like the idea of the consequence? Or are we responding to it because we are starting to see that the thing that we have done that has earned God's judgment is actually destroying us and actually destroying one another? You see, the difference, the, the difference between having a, a, just a knee-knocking fear that Belshazzar had and the right kind of response to judgment is that we, we need to not just have knee-knocking fear, but we need to have knees that hit the ground and grieve and lament over our sins and what they do to us and to others and to our relationship with God. We should not just simply fear and lament and grieve over the consequences of sin, but on what sin is doing to us now. And this is really important for us as we understand how do we take the writing the wall seriously as recipients. We have to see that the writing the wall against us is for the things that we have done that destroys us. But we also need to take the writing the wall seriously, not just as recipients of, of the message, but as messengers of it. As people who understand this message of judgment that, that is really against all people, 
We have to be people who take this message seriously as messengers. If you remember Daniel, I mean, Daniel has been in exile. He, he, has, he has been appointed time and time again, promoted time and time again in Babylon, and yet he continues to still speak the truth of judgment and truth against Babylon. But he does it in a loving, gracious way. I mean, when, when you see his interaction with Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's begging Nebuchadnezzar to repent, to take his pride seriously, to take his sin seriously, because it's going to lead to his demise. Daniel is speaking the truth of judgment that is coming, but he's doing so with grace and love and compassion. So what does this mean if for us to be people who speak the message of the writing on the wall? How do we do so with grace? It means that we speak the message of judgment that is over all people. We speak it with tears in our eyes. That's what that means. I mean, maybe not literally, but, but like we ought to be people who look at the sins of others and grieve over them and weep over them. Not simply because I'm offended by it. That's the difference. You know, if I'm calling out sin in your life because I'm offended by it, That's not helpful. That's not getting us anywhere. But when I'm calling out sin and bringing a message of judgment, declaring the writing on the wall, I'm doing this because I hate what your sin does to you. I hate what it does to others. I hate what it does to this world that God has created. And I want more for you. That's a different posture when speaking about judgment rather than just being, I hate what you do because I am offended by it. We have to be people who speak the truth, who take the writing on the wall seriously, and speak about it with tears in our eyes. Brian Chappell, again, he, he's really helpful here. He says this. He says, we are quick. We are quick to point out evil. Quick to judge. Glad we are not caught in such sin. But are we grieving for those whom sin has led astray? Until the church learns to express grief as eloquently as it vents rage, we shall have little power over sin. So what that means is that I want to love my neighbor enough to hate her sin, to hate his sin because of what it does to them. Not because I find it theologically offensive, but because it is destroying an image bearer of God and it is continuing to wreak havoc in this world that God has created. Why is it that when I'm driving around and I'm at the movie theaters and I see young girls dressed inappropriately and my reaction is is just to, to look down upon them with pity, to be angry, like, why are they doing this? It's so inappropriate. This is just so offensive. Why is my first reaction not for my heart to break? Why, why am I not broken heartfully? Oh, what is compelling these girls to dress in this way, to bring this attention upon them? Oh, what is going on in their homes is causing them to do that? Why is that not my first response? When it comes to taking the, the writing on the wall seriously, we need to respond as recipients with repentant hearts, but we also need to speak that truth with broken hearts. That's what it means to take this writing on the wall seriously. We have to see that the writing on the wall, as I mentioned, is greater than the wall itself. And that the writing on the wall ought to be taken seriously as recipients and as messengers. But the last thing I want us to hear is that the writing on the wall doesn't have to have the final word. The writing on the wall doesn't have to be the final word. There's writing on the wall for each and every one of us. There's no escaping that. We all fail the test of Belshazzar, of pride, of idolatry, of irreverence. We all fall under judgment of God for our sin in one way or another. And because we can't look at the evils of the, of the world and demand justice for them, without realizing that we're actually signing our own death sentence, we have to see that this message is very, very bleak. 
but it does not have to have the final word. Judgment is coming. The question is, where will you be found when it comes? Will you be found within the walls of your own man-made security, of intelligence, of morality, of church attendance, of, of your political party, of your youthfulness, of your possessions? Will you find yourself within this false security of these walls that will eventually crumble and destroy you? Or, or will you find yourself harshly pointing the finger of God's judgment as a weapon at those that you condemn and find offensive, not realizing that the judgment is coming for you as well? That the writing on the wall is for you as well? Or will you be found in the shadow of the cross of Christ, who came to write a new message with his blood on the wall, who came to say that, that the message, the writing on the wall, does not have to have the final word, that I have come to give a new message, a message that says that you don't have to face the judgment that is coming for all because I have faced it for you. We, are, are we able to find ourselves in the shadow of the cross where we hear Jesus saying that, that the message of condemn, condemnation and judgment no longer stands for you? Are we able to hear what the Apostle Paul said in, in Colossians 2? You who were dead in your trespasses, in your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt, the written code that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There is writing on the wall for all of us. And there is no escaping God's judgment. We all stand condemned. And yet, while the writing on the wall must be taken seriously and while it is terrible news, the good news is that the writing on the wall does not have to have the final word. For the cross speaks a better word to us. And it offers us the chance to read a different message, a message that says, you are forgiven because he is condemned. You are made alive because he was put to death. You are redeemed because he was spent. You are justified because he faced the judgment that you deserved. You are made righteous because he was made your sin. There's writing on the wall of judgment for all of us, but it doesn't have to have the final word. And the good news for all of us to, today is that while Belshazzar, while he chose to mock God by using this artifact from the temple to drink from and toast his gods, our God, Jesus Christ, drank the cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to face the judgment that is coming for all. The good news of the gospel tells us that the message on the wall that is for all people doesn't have to have the final word. And by faith in Christ, we can be rescued from this judgment now and forever. Judgment is coming. The question is, where will you be found? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we come to you, Lord, with... I, I come to you with a heavy heart and I, I realize this is not an easy message to hear. But Lord, we would be naive and foolish to think that the writing on the wall is not directed towards us. Lord, all of us have been weighed in the scales of God and been found wanting. We have been found unworthy of your approval because of who we are, because of what we have done and what we have left undone. And so, Lord, I ask that you would awaken us to see the foolishness in our ways of creating false walls of security that will, in the end, lead to our demise. Lord, show us where we are boastful, where we are idolatrous, where we are irreverent towards you. 
Lord, show us where we are condemning others in a, in, a, in a hateful way, in a bitter way, in a way that does not see sin and grieve over it. And Lord, may we come to see that there is no rescue, no shield, no cover from the judgment that is coming for all people except Jesus Christ, the rock of ages, cleft for me. Lord, may we hide ourselves in thee. May the water and the blood from your wounded side which flow, may it be of sin our double cure. May it save us from wrath and make us pure. May we see Jesus as the only shelter from the storm that is coming for all of us. And may we turn to him and find rescue and hear those beautiful words, it is finished, you are forgiven. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May we hear these words afresh and respond to you knowing that you are rich in mercy and quick to forgive. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.